Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. This is The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Dominic Ford and with Ginny Smith. Ginny, you've been taking a look at the science news this week. What have you got for us? Well, I have a story about how being exposed to lights at night could harm both your health and your memory, even if you think you're sleeping normally. So Tara Legates and her colleagues from Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore exposed a group of mice to an alternating pattern of three and a half hours of bright light followed by three and a half hours of darkness over a two-week period. They found that this didn't change the sleeping patterns of the mice, the overall length of time that they slept for, or the pattern of hormones that's normally seen throughout the course of the day. It did, however, make the mice depressed, and it reduced their ability to form new memories. How do you know if a mouse is depressed? Well, obviously you can't just ask a mouse how it's feeling, but there are behavioural signs you can look for. So one of them is whether the animal shows less preference for sweet things than normal. And this is thought to be an indicator of anhedonia, which is the inability to feel pleasure and is a symptom of depression in humans. Depressed mice also seem to give up on certain tasks more readily, just like poorly motivated people. Now, humans with depression also often complain of memory problems, and these mice are exactly the same. They establish new memories less well than the control animals. So why were these mice becoming depressed if their sleep patterns weren't being disturbed by this light cycle? Well, the experiment meant that when the mice, which are normally nocturnal animals, were waking up to become active in what should have been nighttime and dark, they were actually being exposed to light. So this being exposed to light when the brain's not expecting it, the researchers think, is what made the mice depressed. How? Well, the researchers think that it's down to these specialised light-detecting cells that are found in the eye, and they're called intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cells. Bit of a mouthful. These cells don't help animals to see, but instead they detect whether it's daytime or nighttime, and this is then used to set up the brain's internal clock and enable the animals to know when it's time to wake up or when it's time to go to sleep. The researchers found that these cells also send signals to the parts of the brain concerned with both mood and memory. So the mice that were exposed to light at the wrong time, and this is when they're awake and expecting it to be dark, but in humans that will be the equivalent of, say, working late at night in front of a bright computer screen. And it's thought that it's this abnormality that triggers the mood-related brain areas causing the depression, probably by increasing the levels of a stress hormone known as cortisol. So that's in mice. So... Can we argue this will translate to people? Well, we actually do have the same light-sensitive cells that they were looking at in the mice, so there's no reason to think that it couldn't translate to us. I think it's something that's more studies needed in humans, obviously, but it's definitely something important to bear in mind, particularly for people who undertake shift work or who regularly work on a computer late at night. That's me. Thank you very (laughs) much, Ginny. Dominic, what have you flushed out for us this week? Well, this is a paper which I spotted in the journal Astronomy and Astrophysics by Felipe Delorme of uh, the University of Grenoble, and he's made the first detection of a planet which is not orbiting another star, but is in fact free-floating in space. Where did it come from then? So what we think has happened is that this planet will have formed in a planetary system around a star, 
but then some physical process has kicked it out of that planetary system. So it's now a loner drifting in space. Well, obviously the question is how did they see it? But we can come to that in a second. First of all, how did it get into the middle of nowhere in space? Well, this is an interesting development because a lot of theoretical models actually predict that planets are quite often kicked out of planetary systems. Uh, If you look at computational simulations of how planetary systems form, what often happens is that you form quite a lot of planets. Some of those actually get kicked out by gravitational interactions with the other planets in the system, while the other planets move inwards towards their sun as a result of the balance of energy between the planets which are left and and those which pick up velocity and and are slung out of the planetary system. So if we were to take our own solar system as an example, say you were a a massive planet like Jupiter a long way out and you moved in towards the sun a bit, then because you are effectively losing some gravitational potential energy as you're going in in that way, you're going to accelerate other planets in the solar system and, and you're saying potentially to the extent that they could get accelerated so much they will be flung out altogether and they'll just exit the solar system and go off into interstellar space. That's exactly right. And if we look at a lot of the planetary systems that have been found around other stars, these are exoplanets, you find that often you have planets rather like Jupiter orbiting incredibly close into their parent stars, going round every few days, so closer even than Mercury is to our own sun. And they couldn't have formed in that position, that's the key thing, isn't it? Um, They couldn't have formed there simply because there's not enough material there. There wouldn't have been enough material there in the protoplanetary disk. So they must have formed further out and something must have triggered them to migrate inwards towards their parent star. So we think there was probably another planet that would have been kicked out into deep space. So that having been the case, or that's the theory, how did they detect this lone planet wandering around in the middle of nowhere? Because it's not a star, so it doesn't produce light that we can see. And it's not a planet close to a star, so it can't bask in a star's reflective glory, for want of a better phrase. How did they see it? That's a real problem. What they did was to think, if we're going to see one of these things at all, it's got to be a planet that was relatively recently kicked out of its planetary system. So it's still got some warmth to it, which means it will produce some thermal infrared radiation. And then with an infrared telescope, you can potentially try and pick up that thermal infrared radiation. So what they did was to look for clusters of stars close to our own sun. They'd have to be nearby, so you can see this very faint radiation. Um, And then to look just in the vicinity of those and see if you can see any unexplained infrared sources. Is this a relatively juvenile planet? What I mean by that is, in order to get something which is sufficiently warm still to be giving out infrared in the way you say so we can see it, does it have to be quite newly formed? That's right. The planet will probably be kicked out in the early history of that planetary system and then it will get cold quite quickly once it's kicked out. So you want to catch it when it's still young. So this planet, they think, is somewhere between 10 and 100 million years old, which is comparatively young. I mean, our solar system is 5 billion years old. So so this is a young system. It's at a distance of about 50 light years in the constellation of Doradus in the southern hemisphere. And, and this is just a, a cluster of young stars where there's this one planet that appears to have been kicked out. Is this a relatively rare, or do you think we're going to see many such examples of this now we're getting better at finding them? Well, this has been a problem for a theory up until now, because theories have predicted these objects must be there, but without actually seeing them, it's difficult to constrain which of those theories is correct. Now, most of those theories do predict there's quite a lot of these planets, but what's crucial is how many. 
Now, one doesn't tell us how many there are, but if we can start to get hundreds of these things, then that can really tie down which of those theories is correct. And this is a proof of principle, that the state-of-the-art telescopes can detect these cold planets. And over the next five to ten years, I think it's quite likely we will start to see these being detected by the dozen, and that will be really interesting. Well, now let's change direction very slightly because this week the journal The Lancet Infectious Diseases ran a rather unusual detective story. But this is one where rapid DNA sequencing was actually used in a hospital to track down an outbreak of MRSA, methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, and they found an unsuspecting carrier. Now, it bears all the hallmarks of a very good television docudrama, but actually this took place really here in Cambridge, and the research paper that the researchers have published is said to be the first example of actually using this technique to bring an infection to a close. And the author of that study is Professor Sharon Peacock from Cambridge University. She's with us. Hello, Sharon. Hello, good evening. Why did you do this? We want to control MRSA transmission, passing it from one patient to another as much as possible because we want to contain uh, any infections that might arise. And so we, uh, we need to see when MRSA does move from one person to another, and we need to see it fast. Now, the way we do that at the moment is we work out whether two patients who are MRSA positive could have got it from each other because they're in the same ward at the same time. But what we can't do at the moment is to do any sort of typing on the bacteria to see how related the two are. Now, if we had a tool where we could see that they were either related or unrelated, that would be very helpful because we could work out if transmission had occurred from patient A to patient B. But those tests aren't available at the moment, and that's a problem for us. So we know that the two patients have got MRSA, but there's more than one form of MRSA at a molecular level. So we don't know whether they've come into the hospital independently with their infection or something in the hospital is transmitting these infections between these individuals. That's exactly right. You can't see the transmission pathways between patients. So what this new technology does is to actually sequence the whole genome of the bacterium. Now, even just a few years ago, sequencing a bacterial genome would have cost hundreds of thousands of pounds and taken several years to do a single one. There's new technology now available which uh, allows you to do sequencing of multiple genomes with, uh, within a day, actually, very, very fast. And the price is actually falling very rapidly. That means that we can bring this technology to clinical practice quite soon. And so in this study, this research study, we really wanted to test out how useful that could actually be in trying to understand better an MRSA outbreak on our special care baby unit at Brooks Hospital. Can you talk us through how you actually did the study? What, what were the steps and how did you investigate what was going on? Well, we had access to this technology and we knew that there was a suspected outbreak of MRSA on our special care baby unit, which had been investigated by our infection control team. Now, they were not sure whether an outbreak had occurred over an extended period of six months. There were cases coming into special care who were MRSA positive, but they weren't sure if they were all linked. And the reason for that is because throughout that six months, there were quite large gaps when there were no people who were MRSA positive at all. And so one has to ask, how has that transmission gap been closed? So what we did in the first instance was we took all of those isolates and we sequenced them, and we were able to say very quickly that they were all so related at the genome level that this, this had to be an outbreak. So at the same time, we extended our search to look for uh, bacteria that coming from GPs, actually, in outpatient departments. We sequenced those, and we found that actually the outbreak was twice as big as we originally thought, and that there were cases actually in the community. People had developed infections. And we really only linked that to the special care baby unit through the sequencing. 
So that meant that you were then able to say, right, there, there are outbreaks occurring. How did you then go and find the individual that was causing those outbreaks? Well, having uh, identified that there was definitely an outbreak, we, were, we, we put the Special Care Baby in under very close surveillance to see if new carriers or people infected with, with MRSA popped up. And actually, two months after the previous MRSA carrier, we found a new MRSA carrier, an infant. And we were puzzled by this because there was obviously a very long gap when we saw no MRSA at all. And it was at this point that we thought there must be a carrier amongst uh, a member of staff. And so we gathered the staff together and got full agreement that they would be swabbed. And we swabbed 154 staff members and found just one that was a carrier. So, of course, we immediately sequenced that and it was a direct match to the outbreak strain. And so what we think is that this person was involved in, in the outbreak. What that allowed us to do was to actually treat that individual so that they were the MRSA carriage was removed from them and that effectively stopped the outbreak from continuing any further. How do you know that they gave it to the kids and not the other way around? I think that it would be difficult to be absolutely unequivocal about that individual causing a spread throughout the entire outbreak. But what we did do with the staff carrier was we sequenced lots of single uh, bacteria from their carriage population and we got genetic matches to before the two-month gap and after the two-month gap. So we think that that is fairly strong evidence, actually, that that person was at least involved in that transmission event. This is obviously extremely helpful in terms of guiding infection control strategies, but are there any other uses for this sort of technology in guiding how we tackle bugs of all kinds in hospital? I think actually that there will be numerous applications for this. Uh, we'll need to work at exactly where, when and how to use it. But for example, it could be really uh, key in investigating foodborne outbreaks to work at if there is an outbreak and to help contain that. We could use it, for example, to get rapid drug susceptibility testing for people with tuberculosis. So there, there's a, a very wide range of applications um, for this technology. And I think that, that we'll be seeing these brought into use in, in the next few years. Sharon, thank you very much. That's uh, Professor Sharon Peacock from Cambridge University. Ginny. New research from the University College London this week shows that gene therapy can potentially cure epilepsy in rats. Epilepsy affects around 50 million people worldwide. It's a chronic disorder of the brain where patients can suffer seizures and loss of consciousness. These seizures are caused by out-of-control electrical activity in the brain. Dr Stephanie George from UCL's Institute of Neurology, explains why gene therapy was an attractive proposition. Although we now have a set of drugs that can treat epilepsy, there's an incredibly large subset of patients that don't respond to any of the drugs. In fact, there are people who have epilepsy who have seizures that are recurring regularly, and this is a risk of death, and it's roughly one in a hundred per year. So this is a life-threatening thing. One of the treatments is to remove the bit of brain that causes seizures. That's not your first choice for treatment. But for some people, even removing the bit of the brain isn't a great possibility because there are bits of your brain that you can't just cut out without stopping use of an arm or speech. So for those people who drugs don't work and you can't cut out the piece of brain because it's so important, they have no choice but to live with these seizures. And so we're looking for a completely new approach to treating epilepsy. And we decided to take this avenue of gene therapy. You can use genetically modified viruses to deliver little bits of DNA directly to neurons 
only in that little piece of the brain that is triggering a seizure and you express maybe one gene that just slows them down. It doesn't silence them, it doesn't turn them off, but it just stops them from triggering seizures. So what actually is the biological basis of epilepsy? What's happening in that part of the brain that then leads to what's been called an electric storm throughout the rest of the brain? That's a fabulous question, and I wish there was an answer. There's this theory that there's an imbalance between excitation and inhibition, and that generally speaking, you have more excitation than you want and less inhibition than you want. And that means that excitation gets out of hand and you get this feedback, a buzz of a seizure or a storm. And the underlying genetics of that were really quite mysterious, but now through these families who show up in clinic who will have epilepsy running very strongly in their family, in the last 10, 15 years, genes have been coming out and we've been learning from these patients that if you have a mutation that destroys one gene, that can lead to epilepsy. So our thought is if we replace that gene or if we give more of that gene to those cells, maybe we can dampen epilepsy. And actually, the gene that we're working with, that we're really, really most excited about, it's from a boy who showed up in a clinic in Scotland a little more than a decade ago. He was three years old, and his family had epilepsy. He had this very rare, only a dozen families in the world or so have this disease. And we went and looked in his family and sequenced the DNA and found a mutation in one gene called the Shaker Potassium Channel. And it's called the shaker potassium channel because in Drosophila, the fruit fly, when you have a mutation in this gene, they shake. They have little epilepsy-like seizure things. Of course, they're flies, so it's hard to say. It's really epilepsy. But in this family, they also had a mutation in this gene, and they were also having seizures. And the thing that this channel does, it's a potassium channel. When a potassium channel opens, it allows positively charged potassium ions to leave the neuron, and that makes the inside of the neuron relatively more negative, and more negative neurons are less excitable, so maybe less likely to trigger a seizure. So adding this potassium channel means that the nerves are less likely to fire off, so you're less likely to get this uncontrolled activity. How do you actually go about adding it? We used a virus. It's a virus that's derived from HIV. All the bits that make HIV have been stripped out, and instead it's been replaced with this shaker potassium channel gene. And we're using a rat model of epilepsy that is like the human epilepsy. It's really resistant to drugs, and it has a very sharp focus, a small area of the brain that is triggering the seizures. And so we're injecting a tiny amount of virus into that exact tiny little focus. And when we first tried it, we were a little anxious because there's not that many neurons that are affected. And we said, oh, it's not going to be enough. But sure enough, after watching over a period of, it took about a week and a half, the seizures that were well established in these animals going on, the seizures just went away and went away and went away. And by about two weeks, they were gone. And for as long as we could record, they never came back. So it was effectively cured. And once you've added this gene, is there any way to control its expression? The viruses we use, once they go in, they seem to stay in. The gene that we chose is one that normally, when a cell is just sitting quietly, it's not going to do anything. If somebody decides after 10 years that they want the gene out, the model that we used in this trial, you couldn't do that. There are several other possible viruses that you can use that you could switch things on and off, but those are a little further downstream. We're really interested in moving this to the clinical trials and doing preclinical trials and all the 
challenges that lie therein. And one advantage we think we have is that this is a human protein. And it's a human protein that normally occurs in human neurons. So we're not adding something that isn't there already. We're just slightly changing the amount of something that's there already in a very small subset of cells. Stephanie George from University College London. You can read more about that work in the paper published this week in the journal Science Translational Medicine or on our website at thenakedscientists.com slash news. The Naked Scientists News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. <laughs> <laughs>